0: I've just read Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. This is the final chapter of Luke's gospel. The final chapter of him telling the most important story the story of Jesus. The story for which so many people in the succeeding years and generations died. They believed it was so true and so real. And they believed that death itself had been so utterly conquered that because of this story, they faced death and sort of like LeBron after a dunk looked at it and said, Chump, that's all you got. This is the final chapter. This is the climactic chapter. And and the interesting thing is that it's got three scenes. The the first scene is the resurrection of Jesus. The middle scene is the story on the road to um, Emmaus where he reveals himself to some of his followers. And the last scene of... Luke chapter 24 is the story of Jesus revealing himself to his disciples. But it's this middle scene that is the longest that receives the focus of Luke's entire gospel story. It climaxes in the resurrection and then the way he fleshes that out is in this scene. And in this scene what he's doing is he's giving us two fundamental aspects of living the Christian life here after Jesus' resurrection while we are awaiting our own resurrection. Two people walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus It's about seven miles away and it's, it's probably, we don't know for sure, but it seems that it's a husband and a wife. It seems that it's Cleopas from John chapter 19 and his wife Mary. They're scared and they should be. Rome has just slaughtered Jesus because he was leading a movement that threatened the public peace. And that's what Rome does to movements that threaten Pax Romana. They crush them. But they don't only crush the leader. They then quickly find any of the followers they can identify and crucify them too. Can you see this couple walking away from Jerusalem? Can you, in your imagination, see the heaviness in their footsteps? Can can you see how sad and and how filled with fear they are? Despair. So Jesus shows up and joins them. They don't don't recognize him. And he asks them, why are they so overwhelmed? What's, What's driving this peculiar conversation? And so they tell him. And notice, they know the story of Jesus. They know the equivalent of the Gospels. They know about his miraculous life. They know about his his brutal death. They, They even have heard the rumor that he was raised from the dead. But they are still deeply confused, they're off base. In their understanding of Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Well, he has a Bible study with them. He explains the Old Testament to them. Now, these are Jews. Here's the irony. They knew the Old Testament. Just like they had all the details of the life of Jesus in their mind. They had all the details of the Old Testament in their mind. They had, they had cut their eye teeth on the Old Testament. They knew it far better than you do. And yet, Jesus has to explain it to them. The reason is, like everybody else in Israel, they had been reading the Old Testament from the wrong end of the telescope. They had, they had been seeing the Old Testament as a long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering... But in, in fact, the Old Testament was the, the long story of how God was going to de- redeem Israel through suffering. And because they got the goal of the Old Testament wrong, they were confused about all the details. They had put all the scenes together to tell a different narrative. Because in a story, meaning is determined by the location of the scenes plot is movement over time. You, you take one scene and you move it around and it changes the whole story. Have you, have you seen The Sixth Sense? When you discover the true ending of the story, you go back and watch the whole movie again and it's a different movie and you realize that you had been putting the data together the wrong way and you had been telling in your own mind the wrong story. So that's what Jesus does. He takes all of the stuff they know and he puts it together To tell the story of how God was not going to redeem Israel from suffering. But how God was going to redeem Israel through suffering. But get this. By taking Israel's suffering on himself. They never imagined that a God would do that. It's sort of like the song we just sing. How can it be that a king would die for me? That's what was going on. How could this be? It took everybody by surprise that this was the way God worked his agenda out. And so what I'm saying is that without the life of Jesus, the Old Testament cannot be read correctly. And without the Old Testament, Jesus cannot be understood correctly. Now let me push this into our lives in two primary ways. First, before these two people could begin to understand who Jesus was, Before they could see Jesus, they had to be prepared. It's not simply that they couldn't physically recognize him. No, that's true. Something had happened in his resurrection that that changed his look. So that these people who had seen Jesus can't really tell that it's him. But notice that Luke says that's the symptom because he, died, he ties their inability to physically recognize him, he ties it to their misreading of the Old Testament. The way Luke tells his story, he's tying the fact that they can't see Jesus physically to the fact that they couldn't recognize that these events that just occurred were the climax of the long story of the Old Testament. The long story of how God is working to defeat evil and suffering and death through his messy relationship with Israel. The way Luke narrates this episode tells us that you can only see Jesus correctly. You can only recognize him for who he really is and not who you want him to be. Not who your civil religion makes him to be, you can only accurately see Jesus when you learn to see him within the large epic that the Bible tells beginning on page one. In other words, don't ever buy something in the store that's labeled the New Testament. Without the old. That was their problem. Even though they knew the old. They divorced them. They didn't put them together. The story of God's redemption. Of the whole world. From corruption and sorrow and death. Beginning in Genesis. Going all the way through. This is the only context. In which Jesus can be seen. What I'm saying to you is that you've got to read the Bible, the whole Bible. But not only do you need to read it, you've got to learn how to read it. We've got to learn to see Jesus as the master story that the Bible is telling. Now, is it any wonder that the contemporary church, with its colossal ignorance of the Old Testament, it is in the same place as these two disciples. We know the details of the life of Jesus. But the contemporary church, in so many aspects, is so confused. Because we live at the end of about 200 years of the Old Testament being sidelined. So that week after week after week, Christians in churches in America are not exposed to the Old Testament. They're not taught the Old Testament. And if they are, it's merely illustrations. Cute little moral stories. What I'm saying is that we've got to see Jesus' rebuke to these two people walking to Emmaus as a rebuke to us. Oh, foolish American Christians, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, with Genesis, with page one, and all the prophets, we've got to learn to see Jesus as though that plot, that story interprets him for us. We've got to read and study the Bible far more Than we have ever imagined. But reading it is not enough. And and studying it is not enough. These two people on the road to Emmaus. They had done that. At least they had done that. But even that is not enough. Because they didn't know how to read it correctly. And this leads me to the second way. That we can push this component, this aspect of the Christian life, the scriptures, a second way that we can push it deep into our lives, and it's this. Not only is a fundamental weakness of contemporary American Christianity the loss of the Old Testament, but it is also this, the privileging of your personal relationship with God over the church. The Christian faith is a mediated faith. It is not a personal faith first. It is first mediated. Now, let me show you what I'm saying. What we've done is that we, as Americans, we've made this move where we have, we have rightly seen the value, uh, the, the type of Christians that we are. We've rightly seen the value of a personal relationship. So important. We talk about it and we should. But what we've done is we've made our personal relationship with Jesus secondary to the church. And that is a fundamental flaw. It is just in the same way that that taking the New Testament by itself is a flaw. The problem here is that making your personal relationship with Jesus primary and going to church an expression of that, secondary, that is exactly backwards. The church is primary. Your personal relationship with Jesus is secondary. Reading the Bible, studying it, learning it, this is fundamental to the Christian life. But do you notice what's going on in this passage? You've got to read the Bible with the church. Because it is in the context of the church, it is in the womb of the church, where the risen Lord himself comes to us, like he did to Cleopas and this other person, and teaches them. Let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. See, the problem is that at the end of the story with Cleopas and this other person, what does it say Jesus did? He vanished. Our problem is that Jesus isn't walking from here to your house with you, right? We, like Cleopas and this other person, we need Jesus to come to us and to unlock the mystery of Scripture, to teach us how to put it all together, to show us how it fits to tell him. But we don't have what they had. Who of us has ever been driving somewhere and Jesus in flesh and blood or walking somewhere walks up to us and says, Alan, let me put it together for you. And then physically actually does that for him. We don't have that. We live right after the story where Jesus has vanished, right? I mean, that's the obvious thing. But we still need Jesus as the teacher. If not, we're going to get it wrong. And if getting it right is, is one of the two fundamental aspects to living the Christian life, we have a bit of a conundrum until we read Hebrews chapter 2. And notice what it says in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Talking about the Father, what he did with the Son. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now this is talking about Jesus. And notice, this is one of the most remarkable places in the Bible. The author of Hebrews is now about to quote from Psalm 2, Psalm 22. And he puts Psalm 22 in the mouth of Jesus. I will tell of your name. That's Jesus, I, talking to the Father. It's the Son saying to the Father, I will tell your name, Father, to my brothers where? In the midst of the congregation, I, Jesus, will sing you, Father, your praise. Where does Jesus come to us and interpret God to us? In the congregation, in worship. Church is primary, your personal relationship to God is secondary. You see, the most important way for a person to engage Scripture is when the church is gathered in worship. Because whether you know it or not, Christ is among us, walking among us, telling us who the Father is. This is the primary worship, Sunday morning, corporate, ritualized worship. This is the primary moment in which Jesus Christ comes to us and teaches us and guides us. Now, I'm not saying that your personal relationship with God is unimportant. I never said unimportant. I said secondary. But look, there are a lot of secondary parts of your body that you would have a problem with if they were missing. Secondary in no way means unimportant. Still critical but not primary. I'm not saying that we don't need to learn how to have a personal relationship with Jesus, how to read the Bible on our own and how to study the Bible. I'm just saying that your own personal times of reading Scripture, while they are essential, they are secondary to this. Whether it's at this church or another church. And church is not just when a couple of people who believe in Jesus get together at Starbucks. What I'm talking about is Sunday morning corporate ritualized worship. The primary way to receive Christ in Scripture is in Sunday morning, public, corporate, ritualized worship. The secondary way is in your private devotions. Now look, we don't in any way, as evangelical Christians, need to diminish how much we talk about reading the Bible privately. We just need to elevate above it what we do in corporate worship. So I'm not saying anything we've been saying about your personal devotional life is wrong. I'm just saying it's in the passenger seat... And what what is more important is this. So if you have more guilt about missing your quiet time than you have about missing worship, you're screwed up. Your thinking is wrong. Now, college students, this is our last Sunday with you. Uh, with a lot of you. You're, you're going home. Like, like Hamlet said, get thee to a nunnery, but not in his double entendre sense. Get thee to church. A mediocre church is better than the perfect church that you can't find. Just get to a church and embed your life in it and learn how to function in a church. And remember, whenever we read the Bible, whether it's privately or in pairs or in larger groups, whenever we read and study the Bible, we've got to pray for Jesus to be present, to guide us, to teach us. Without faith in Christ, without love for Christ, the doors of your heart are going to be closed. And God, Christ stops before closed doors. So when we come to his word, whether it's in scripture, in our personal life, we pray and we ask Christ to come to us. We open our hearts to him. So that he will do with us what he did with his two followers walking away from Jerusalem. When it comes to living the Christian life, that's the first central component. Scripture. The whole Bible. Learning to read the Old Testament as reaching its natural climax in Jesus himself. Now to see the second component that's essential to living the Christian life. Notice verse 32. Luke chapter 24, verse 32. Here we learn that learning about Jesus in Scripture, learning to see Jesus in the whole of Scripture, that this is not only an intellectual act of learning something, but notice, it's also very emotional. Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us Scripture? This this intellectual impact, this emotional impact of of reading Scripture right. And I'm sure this has happened to many of you. Suddenly you see things in Scripture. You see Christ blooming out of Scripture. And it can have a profound emotional impact. But, But notice, even this, even the intellectual and the emotional impact of Scripture is not enough. Because Luke is very clear in this scene even after Jesus has explained everything about himself in Scripture, they still don't see him. Now think about this. What better teacher? What better setting? Do you think he missed something? No. Scripture is not enough. Even when Jesus is sitting with you, and teaching you. That's, that's the way Luke is, is narrating this scene. They don't recognize him. They actually, they accurately learned about Jesus, yes. And they were deeply intellectually, emotionally affected, but they did not see Jesus. That does not occur until what? He breaks the bread. Now, Luke is telling this. Look what it says. Where is it? Where? What is it? Verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now, Luke is telling the story not just to report the information. He's far more aggressive than that. He's telling the story in the way he's telling it to help us to be implicated by the story, to live our lives into it. And through this masterful storytelling, we see that the Bible without the bread and the wine is insufficient. Scripture without sacrament is not. Enough. The word and the Eucharist must go together. Food has always been central to worship. I love the chapter that Jake read to us, Exodus 24. Did you get that odd line right in the middle of it? God calls them to worship. It started the same way our worship services start, with God summoning us to worship. They climb up the mountain. Just like we have to do in worship. It's so hard to get yourself all in the game some mornings. And then what does it say they do? It says in Exodus 24, they beheld God and ate and drank. (laughs) Eating has always been a part of God's worship. You see, from the beginning, the sanctuaries in the Bible have been dominated by food. I mean, think back. Those of you who know the Old Testament, remember the story about David eating the bread in the the, uh, tabernacle, in the temple? In the tabernacle? The sanctuaries are always dominated by Adam and Eve in the garden. They're offered the tree of life. Abraham builds altars which are always being turned into tables. There's an altar and a table in the tabernacle. Communion with God is always maintained through food that we share together before him and food that we share with him. That never changed. It didn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So when Christians gather for worship, we come as thirsty souls and thirsty bodies. We come as lovers longing for our beloved. And it's at the table that we meet him face to face. Let let me show you what I mean. Look in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 verse 51. Here's Jesus. I am the living bread... They came down from heaven. All right, if worship is always about food, and now Jesus is saying, I'm that food, we've got a bit of a problem. You see, because in the shift from the Old Testament to New Testament, we no longer slaughter a lamb. Jesus says, Now I'm the slaughtered lamb, but there's a problem. Because there are Christians all over the world, and there's only one lamb. And he's no longer here with us physically. So how do we actually feast on him? I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Not symbolically my flesh. Jesus wasn't merely a symbol. No, his real flesh sacrificed, is... The life of the world. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And look, when you read that in the context of the whole Old Testament, it's not a symbolic eating. Because worship has never been a symbolic eating. It's always been real bread and real wine. And now Jesus steps in and says, I'm the bread and I'm the wine. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will leave, but live because of me. Now, by the way, does anybody know what happens after this? To the crowds? Anybody know this part of the story? They leave. They leave. They would not have left if he was being metaphorical because it's as easy metaphorically. You know why they left? Because this is craziness. How can we eat his body? I mean, that's cannibalism. And plus, look how many of us there are and we're in a bunch of different places. It was so difficult to understand. They left. And you know what Jesus did? He waved goodbye. He didn't stop and say, oh, you misunderstood me. I was being literal. I was being metaphorical. No, he let them go because they had discovered the true crux of it all. Now, in a few minutes, when we come to the table, what I'm saying to you is that the bread and the wine are not object lessons. Yes, they are. But they're not merely object lessons. In John 6, we see that the bread and the wine, it is the body and the blood of Jesus. And right at the end of the prayers, we pray, before we eat the bread and the wine, right at the, right at the end, we pray this wonderful prayer called the prayer of humble access. And it's, it's almost line for line out of John chapter 6. We're just repeating Jesus' words back to him. So when we come to the table, we come face to face with the risen Christ. Now, I'm not arguing for some Catholic view of how this happens or a Lutheran view of how this happens. I don't know how this happens. But look, I believe God raised Jesus from the dead. I'm already so far out on the limb of craziness. (laughs) How how can this become crazy? Crazy. I mean, don't tell me you can believe in Jesus' resurrection and hope for your own resurrection and not believe that that God has the power to do something here that you can't comprehend. Now, that's a story. That's a sermon for a whole other time. How that works out? All I'm doing is staking the claim that it is central to living the Christian life. As central as eating is to your survival, eating the bread and the wine is to you living the Christian life. No single act of the community of faith so thoroughly brings us into fellowship with Christ as the Eucharist. When we come to the table, it is an immediate actual encounter with the risen Christ. At the table, we take Christ into ourselves and Christ takes us into him. This is the moment of our greatest Intimacy with Jesus. Christ-centered preaching is not enough. So summing up these two components. At the center of the Christian life. Scripture without the bread is merely intellectual or emotional. Depending on what kind of church you grew up in. But the Bible without the table. But the table without the Bible is a magic act. So the problem is we live in a moment in the Christian story in America where a great divorce has occurred. And we've got the Bible-centered Protestants who've divorced the bread and the wine from the Bible and they've kept the Bible. And we've got the table-centered Catholics and Orthodox who've divorced Scripture and sacrament and kept the Scripture. It's kept the sacrament. So you've got beautiful liturgies in the Episcopal Church and the Catholic Church with eight-minute homilies. And in the Protestant Church, you've got the reverencing of the Word and the sidelining of the table. The divorce was never meant to occur. They belong together at the climax of Luke working out the implications of the resurrection. is a beautiful narrative that forces them together. Scripture and sacrament, Bible and table, they are the center of Christian living. This is the nuclear reactor for Christian living. After all, what happens once the disciples recognize Jesus at the table? Look what it says in verse 33. And they arose that same hour and returned where? Where did they discover the courage to walk back into the lion's den? Where did how did they how did they get hope in place of their despair? At that same hour they returned to Jerusalem. They had been fleeing and after scripture and the table their eyes are opened and they became witnesses of the Lord. They go back and say, "Yes, he is risen." They had been fleeing from danger, now they returned to danger. They had been confused about Jesus, now they are witnesses. witness. How, how, How many of you, this could be your own week? Scared? Tired? Confused? Worn out? Isn't this so many of us? Haven't we just come off of weeks where we've been at jobs that made us Doubt. Don't we get to Sunday mornings exhausted? Don't we get here having seen enough of the world we're not sure if we can face it again? Filled with our own sorrows. Our own disappointments. And you know what the Lord says? He comes right into that week. And in the worship of the church... He comes among us like it says in Hebrews 2. And he he declares the Father's name. And then he says, that's not enough. I've got more for you than mere knowledge. I want to give you myself. And he feeds us at his table. So that Aaron and Scott can go back to one of the most brutal vocations in America today. Defense work. So that Janelle can go back to raising five children. So that Maisie can go back to a job that doesn't make all the ends meet and face another week. So that Ernie can continue working out what God's call is on his life. This is what Sunday is. It's Christ meeting us on the road to Emmaus that is our own lives. So that we can turn around and go back to the coalface of our vocation, of our families, of our neighborhoods. Back. To the complex, tiring, dangerous reality of this world. We come to church on Sundays just like these two. Now, think back to the very first meal in the Bible. At the beginning of creation. The moment is heavy with significance. It tells us in Genesis chapter 3 verses 6 and 7. When the two women saw that the tree was... That's not right. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were what? What? Open. That's what it says, right? Husband and wife, first meal in the Bible. They eat and after they eat, what happens to their eyes? They're opened. This is why I believe it was Cleopas and Mary. A husband and a wife. You see, here at the beginning of human history, evil came upon the human race. Death itself goes back to this moment. In this moment, the entire creation was subjected to decay and futility and sorrow. And then we get to Luke 24. And we find another pair. And Jesus is serving the first meal of the new creation. And he took the bread. Eve took the fruit. And he broke it and he gave it to them. Eve gave it to Adam. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. Evil and death, pain and suffering entered our world when a husband and a wife Took an illicit meal. And here, the couple at Emmaus discover in a meal that the long curse is broken. That death itself. Can you see Jesus on the morning of his resurrection? Like LeBron, looking at death. That's all you got? You see this trail of people behind me as far as the eyes and the centuries can see? Death, they will do the same thing to you. They will come out of you. You have no hold on them. That first meal shattered it all. But in this new meal we see that death itself has been defeated. That God's new creation brimming with life and joy and new possibility has burst in upon the world. This world of decay and sorrow. It is the first day of a new creation. Hearing Jesus' voice in scripture knowing him in the breaking of the bread, this is the way to live the Christian life. This is the source from which all Christian living springs. Let's pray.